passage comes from Romans chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. Paul writes, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that we as your church are able to freely gather here this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. We praise you for the reality that we see throughout the scriptures that you must do a work in our hearts. You must circumcise our hearts so we might know you truly. Father, I thank you for the salvations that are represented in this room. We pray now that you would speak through Pastor Jeff to proclaim your word faithfully. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Ryan. Good morning. Good morning. Are you ready? I want to encourage you today. I know this is the sleepy service because lunch is not far away and it's raining a little bit, but I just want to encourage you, sit up, lean forward a little bit, take a few notes (laughs) because what Paul is going to teach us today in this scripture is just going to be fundamental. It's going to be foundational to what he has to say next week. And if you don't want to miss that all-important message, today is critical, critical. Thank you for reading that scripture. We're going to be in chapter 2. If you have your Bible, please turn there. We will be in verses 17 through 29, and we are just going to walk right down through it verse by verse. I want to say this firstly, though. Verses 12 through 13 establish that no one who merely possesses the law code of Moses will be exempt from God's condemnation. No one. In fact, I want to read it to you again. It's the hinge. It's the fulcrum of this chapter. It says in chapter 2, verse 12 through 13, it says, For all who sin without the law, that is, without Moses' law, will also perish without Moses' law. That's the Gentiles. They're going to perish and be condemned because they have the moral law of God written on their hearts. And all who sin under the law then will be judged by that law, Moses' law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God. It's not the people who show up to synagogue and hear it read to them every week. But the doers of the law are justified. So what he's going to do, what he did last week, is he set the bar so high. Remember what Moses said. If you're going to have life by this law, then you you have to do all of it. You have to do every single command that I have given you. Now, one of our kids, who shall remain nameless, (laughs) failed their first driving test not too long ago. (laughs) They took the classes. They heard the traffic laws. They could pass the written exam. They even passed the practice drives. But when it came time to show up, And take the final test in order to get their license, the student, who again shall remain unnamed, (laughs) did a rolling stop through all the stop signs and stoplights and failed immediately. (laughs) Now, that student could not appeal to the fact that they got all the rest of the laws right. They obeyed every other driving rule. They couldn't appeal to the fact that they had sufficient exposure in class. They heard it read to them each and every week. 
They couldn't appeal to the fact that they showed up and heard the instructions on the traffic laws or even passed the, the practice tests. No, receiving their license depended on whether or not they obeyed all the laws when they were in the car with that little gatekeeper called the driving instructor who has his own little kingdom. He's got his own little fiefdom there, and you've got to do it according to the way he says, Right? So what Paul means to say to his countrymen, to his fellow Jews, is this. It doesn't matter how much Torah, how much of the law has been read to you on Sabbath, in synagogue. It doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not you have met the standard, which is to live according to it with every single law. Every one. So Paul means to say that a fine Abrahamic lineage and heritage, knowledge of the law, Merely hearing it or possessing it, having it, is not enough. It's not immunity from judgment. And now what we've discovered from chapter 12, verses 1 through 16, is that he hasn't specifically now been talking to the Jews. Yes, he's included them, but he's been talking, according to chapter 2, verse 1, he, he says, you, whoever you are. Look at it. He says, whoever you are. Now this is a rhetorical device called diatribe. And, the first, and this book is permeated with this rhetorical advice, uh, device. And what it is, it's just Paul setting up a hypothetical dialogue partner. He says, you, whoever you are, whether you're a Stoic philosopher or a follower of Stoic philosophy and you agree with moralism, or whether you're a Jew and you agree with the, you agree with the moral code of the Torah, Whoever you are, this applies to you. But now in verse 17, though, he's going to turn very specifically to the Jew, his countrymen. And the first thing he says here is, number one, preaching Moses' law provides no immunity from judgment. None. Having it, possessing it, hearing it, preaching it, gives you no immunity from God's final judgment when you stand before him, and we all will. At the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, statisticians and researchers kicked into high gear. And over a while, we began to hear these sort of immediately collected statistics, didn't we? These studies, and you heard them every day, you saw them in your news feeds every single day, and after a while, it just kind of became a noise, like a low hum in the background, and you stopped paying attention to them, but there was one that I kept, and I've been saving it for today. And this was shocking, because when I heard it, I thought, this is, this is astonishing. 55% of people who live in America, 55% of people who have a religious affiliation across the board, doesn't matter what the religious affiliation is, it could, be, it could be Islam, it could be the Jehovah's Witness religion, it could be LDS, or it could be the Christian faith, it could be whatever it is. If they had a religious affiliation, 55% of the people believed that they, they experienced an extra immunity from the effects of COVID-19. Now, of course, we learned that's nonsense. Of course, that's nonsense. COVID-19 was an equal, equal opportunity infector. It turns out that it was no respecter of religious belief at all. Secular and religious people alike contracted it. Religious affiliation alone conferred no additional immunity 
And in the same way, this is the point that Paul means to communicate to his fellow Jews, having the law, knowing the law, preaching the law to others, hearing it every Sabbath, read in synagogue, is going to confer on you no exemption before God on judgment day. And so he lists four privileges of being an Israelite. He's going to list four privileges. He's going to tell them about four pretensions that come out of these privileges and then three proofs against them. So the privileges. Romans 2, 17 and 18, verses 17 and 18, he says, now if you call yourself a Jew, that's their title. The word Jew is the word Judah. It's the word Judah. You see it, uh, remember Jesus had a disciple. He had two disciples named Judas, that's the word. And it means the praise of God. It means the one who brings praise to God, right? That's their title. He says, if that's your title, and then you rely on the law and you boast in God, this is their trust. They boast in the fact that they rely on the law, the legal system, to give them righteousness, right? And he says, and if you know his will and approve of the things that are superior, well, of course the Ten Commandments is a superior moral code, isn't it? It's, it's the greatest moral code. I don't care what Sam Harris or these other knuckleheads that you have heard from these people, these atheists. They are, they are exactly wrong. The Ten Commandments is the greatest moral code ever given to human beings because if God does exist, that means you and I have a moral obligation to worship him and no other God. And the first five is about God. The first five out of Exodus chapter 20 in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are about our obligations to be worshipers of God and God alone. So God exists. We have that obligation. In addition to that, the second half, the second half of the Decalogue is about you and me. It's about our obligations to one another. The moral obligations that we have to each other. So don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery with your neighbor's spouse. Like, don't break into their house and kill them in the middle of the night and axe murder them to death and steal their stuff. I think we could all agree that's a superior moral code. (laughs) And this is set against now the horrendous inequities in the Greco-Roman culture caused by nonsensical idiocy within paganism and the abhorrent lack of personal morality. That is morality that is based in a human being as an image bearer of God in atheism. Now, I'm not talking about Western culture atheism. I'm not talking about Europe or the UK, which used to be Christian, like they're founded on a Western Judeo-Christian ethic, a moral system, and then they became atheists, so now they have the privilege, the opportunity to borrow from their Judeo-Christian heritage moral, morality, and imported into their atheism. That's fundamentally different than North Korea or China or nation states that have never had a Judeo-Christian worldview at their foundation. If you want to see how atheism really plays out, look at those states. Did you know this is going on right now, right now? In our world today, North Korean women who escape North Korea, which itself is a gulag state, it's a prison state. The people are treated like slaves. The people are treated like drones of the government. The the people are not treated as if they are image-bearing children of God. And when women escape that state and, and make it to China, Chinese military 
will sometimes rape them, oftentimes rape them, and then send them back to North Korea. And when they get back to North Korea now, according to Chinese policy and according to North Korea's policy, because they're half-breeds, these children born of these rapes, they cannot be Chinese citizens, so they have no rights under China, and they have no rights under North Korea. So these children are gathered up and put into prisons, work camps, gulags, where they work as slaves of the state. Why? Because this is an atheistic government, and atheism is playing itself out to its logical end. This person does, is not an image bearer of God. They have not been conferred. They have not been given by God image-bearing properties. And so they don't have any rights. They don't have the rights of life and liberty in the pursuit of their own happiness. They don't have that. And so, of course, the Jewish, Jewish system, the moral law code of the Torah, is far superior to any of that, and the Jews know it. Oh, they know this. And so Paul says, and so you know his will. You know the mind of God. It's in your, your scriptures there, and you approve of all the things that are superior. Of course these things are superior. And then you've been instructed from the law. I just did my dissertation on this. I just finished a 15-year-long study, I'm not kidding, of Jewish education. I've been studying it for 15 years. And here's the conclusion I came to. I finally made a conclusion, right? <laughs> that is that the Jewish people in the first century are the most well-educated people in the ancient world. There is no other culture like them. There is no other culture where people show up on a weekly basis to be taught from morning to night the Torah law and to be educated in that system. These people could rattle it off like they know the, like you and I know the stanzas to Amazing Grace or Oceans. <laughs> so what does he tell them here? <laughs> I don't think our worship team does know that song, actually. Um, but uh, I'm just messing with y'all. I'm just messing with y'all. So what do they have? They have the title, Jew the one who brings praise to Yahweh. They have the trust. They rely on this word. Torah law, the righteousness of Torah. They have the Ten Commandments, a clearly superior system revealed by the mind of God. And they have the teaching. They are the most bookish religion in a world of mass illiteracy. They're the most well-instructed people and taught taught their faith. So who in the world wouldn't want to be a Jew? Who wouldn't want to be a Jew? What pride, what a boast to be the people of God with the law of God, with the instruction of God, knowing his mind and knowing his will and knowing the superior way. So those four privileges now are going to create in some of them an abhorrent pride, just like it did the Pharisees. So he lists four pretensions, verses 19 through 20. Four pretensions now as a result of this. 19, he says, and if you are convinced, you're sure, and you rely on the law and boast in God that you are a guide for the blind. Now, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 15 and Matthew 23 to the Pharisees. He said, oh, you're just, you're, you're guides for the blind, aren't you? And then he very sarcastically says, but what happens if the, if the guide is, himself is blind? The blind guide will lead a blind man into a pit, into a hole. And everyone in his congregation just 
bust out laughing to that because that's ancient humor. Or he says in Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you blind guides, Pharisees, scribes, you hypocrites. In John 9, there's a literal blind man who's there at the pool of Siloam in the temple complex, and Jesus heals him, but it happens to be the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees hear about this man, and they go sideways on Jesus. They're infuriated. He's doing work on the Sabbath. And so there is an image-bearing man created in God's image standing before them who's been blind from birth, who now can see, and they are totally oblivious to that. They do not know that the Sabbath law was made for the man, not the man for the Sabbath. And so there's Jesus, the Son of God, healing this man. Now, what do they do to him? They excommunicate him from the temple. And no sooner do they excommunicate him from temple life, they find Jesus, they accost him, and Jesus says, well, I've, I've come so that the sightless can see and those who think they can see are going to be blind. And you know what they say in the text? You, th- you think we're blind? That's what they say. So you think we're blind? And Jesus said, well, if you were blind, I would heal you and you would have your sight. But since you say you can see, your blindness remains. And so this is the kind of idea that Paul is talking about here. Paul is saying, listen, if you in your proud boast and education in the Torah, if you think that you're a, a, a guide for the blind, are you blind? Are you still blind to Jesus the Messiah? Are you still blind to the truth of God's Son? And then he goes on to say, if you think you're a light to those in darkness, well, this was their vocation. Isaiah 42, 6. Isaiah 49, 6. The nation of Israel was to be a light to the surrounding nations. He said, so you boast that you're a light to those who are in darkness? Verse 20, he says, you, you boast that you're an instructor of the ignorant? A teacher of the immature? Now, in Romans chapter 10, verse 3, he's going to say, my countrymen are ignorant. They think they have knowledge. They don't. They have zeal, but it's without knowledge. What don't they know? They don't know the righteousness that has been revealed in their Christ and their Messiah who came to save them and die for them. They don't know that righteousness. It's going to go on to say uh, you have the embodiment of knowledge and the truth in the law. And this word embodiment is the word morphosis, right? It's the word morphosis. And this is the same word that he uses now in 2 Timothy 3, 5, where he says, my countrymen have the embodiment of godliness, right? They think they are the embodiment of the Old Testament, but they deny the power therein. They deny the power of it, which is the power, the person, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so later, Paul is going to identify them as these very people. So what do they have? They have, they presume to be leaders for the blind. They're blind. They presuppose that they, have, they are a light to those in darkness, but do they still walk in darkness? They assume the posture of lecturing others for their immorality or on matters of faith, but yet they might be ignorant to God's truth and the Messiah, and they suppose that they are the living embodiment and the sacred trust of Scripture. But are they? Well, now he's going to bring three proofs, three indictments or three evidences to indict them. Three proofs to indict them, verses 21 through 24. Now, all of these evidence that that he gives here, all the evidence that he gives here, 
They fit under the rubric or under the heading of hypocrisy. It's right here in verse 21. He says, you then, you, my fellow Jew, who teach another, don't you teach yourself? This is the essence of hypocrisy. If you teach others and you bind it on them, but then you don't require it of yourself, what is that? You're a hypocrite. So all of these evidences are under the rubric, they're under the heading of a hypocritical person who has really not examined their lives, who really don't, don't know just how far from grace they have fallen. So the first evidence is failing to pay their tithes as diaspora Jews. Failing to pay their tithes as diaspora Jews. He says, you who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? No, he's referring to the problem that they had in the first century of all of the Jewish communities scattered across the Mediterranean. They're scattered across the Roman Empire. They're supposed to obey Torah law that says they have to give a tenth of all of their income, their spices and all this kind of stuff, to the temple to support the sacrificial system, right? So they're supposed to do that. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 the prophet Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, says this. Uh, he says, uh, God says through the prophet, uh, why are you robbing me? And the people respond, how are we robbing you? And God says, because you failed to bring the tithe into my storehouse, which is the temple. Right? And so there, this is a problem now. Remember when Jesus said to the Pharisees, you, you travel long distances, land and sea, to make what? A single convert. What are they making them converts to? Phariseeism. Phariseeism. What are the Pharisees known for? It's right there in Matthew 23. They're known for their meticulous, fastidious, like application of the Torah, in particular, tithing. They tithe a tenth of everything right down to like their spice rack. So they're now they're going abroad trying to win these people to Phariseeism to get them to tithe to their temple system. And Paul says this, you who preach, you must not steal. Are you stealing from God's temple? Well, you're not in compliance. That's, what he, that's all he's saying. The second evidence is committing adultery, both metaphorically and literally, both nationally, corporately, and personally. He says in verse 22, he says, you who say, you must not commit adultery now. That's in the Torah. That's in Exodus 20. Do you commit adultery now, this command was broken by Israel nationally and corporately as God repeatedly in their prophets charged the nation for adultery. So he uses this as a metaphor now. What he says is that your turning to other gods is like committing adultery. It's like I'm your husband and you're supposed to have fidelity. You're supposed to be faithful to me and then you turn to these false gods and God says that's adultery. So corporately, metaphorically, they do this all the time. Look at Jeremiah 3.8, a very clear passage on this. He says, I observed that it was because of unfaithful Israel had committed adultery that I had sent her away and had given her a certificate of divorce. Now, later in the book of Jeremiah, that corporate metaphorical sort of figural adultery is going to turn into literal adultery. When they serve these idols, these false gods who are no gods, turning away from the God who chose them and, and brought them out of Egypt and all the rest, gave them the law, then Jeremiah is going to go on to, to give us a grisly, ghastly picture of the Jews on the hillsides committing adultery 
in all perverse ways with these temple prostitutes. And he's going to go on to describe the priests and the prophets, the very people who are supposed to be leading Israel are adulterers. They're perverted. They're lost in a life of perversion. And Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard Moses say, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even look at another person with lust and a lustful intent in your heart, you're already guilty of the sentiment of adultery, which means you're guilty. Because sin is not just a matter of external things that you do. Sin is a matter of the heart. Sin is a matter of where your heart is in relationship to it. So now Paul wants to bring this up. Paul is like, look, look at your life. Look at us. You're in Rome. Why are you in Rome? Because the Jews committed adultery against God, and God scattered them across the face of the earth. Your very presence there is is evidence of the fact that as a nation, we have not been able to live up to this command. He goes on to say, the third evidence is robbing pagan temples. This one's weird. Why is this in the text? You, You read it, if you just read it sort of quick, first pass, you don't really know what he's talking to, talking about. Uh, verse 22, he says, uh, you who detest idols. You hate idols, don't you? Of course you do. You're a Jew. Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking it? For as it is written, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. Now, the name of God is supposed to be praised because of them because their name is Yehuda. Their name is the Jew. And the Jews means the people who praise God, who bring praise to God's name. Instead, what Paul says is, you have brought reproach on God. Our ancestors, we today, are bringing blasphemy. God's name is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of us. So what's he talking about with all this detesting idols and robbing temples? Who is robbing temples? More than a few ancient witnesses record dubious and questionable behavior in this regard. Now, Deuteronomy 7.2 and 7.5, 7.25 says very clearly that a Jew is not even supposed to handle a, for, a foreign idol. They're not even supposed to touch it or they're unclean. So what is going on here, what historians are telling us uh, from the first century is that this was a public scandal. Jewish rabbis had created a legal loophole that allowed them to touch idols and disobey Moses. And they were going down to the flea markets and finding these things that had been robbed, sold for quick cash in flea markets, and then they were buying them, dressing them up, and then reselling them for a profit. So they are explicitly breaking Moses' law, but then they've created an extra legal loophole so that they cannot be held accountable to it. Paul says that's just robbing temples. It's the same thing. Additionally, there were some unscrupulous zealots who sought to rob temples of their expensive accoutrements under the guise of melting it down and then giving the sale, the proceeds from the sale to the temple in Jerusalem. And they didn't. They kept the proceeds for themselves. And this was a widely known scandal. Another scandal was a first century man who got a gang of thugs around him and they swindled a rich Greco-Roman woman who had converted to Judaism, and they took all of the gifts that she gave them, melted them down, and kept the proceeds for themselves under the guise of giving them to the temple in Jerusalem. Here's Josephus's 
description of that. Now, Josephus is a first century Jewish historian. Here's what he says. He, this person, this man, this Jewish guy, then living at Rome, professed to instruct men in the wisdom of the law of Moses. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about you who profess to instruct others, to be an instructor of Moses' law. He says he procured also three other men entirely of the same character with himself to be his partners, and, and the men persuaded Fulvia, a woman of great dignity and one that had embraced the Jewish religion, to send purple and gold to the temple of Jerusalem, and when they had gotten them, they employed the gifts that Fulvia gave them for their own uses and spent the money on themselves. He says, when Tiberius, now Tiberius is the emperor, this is in 19 AD, this is AD 19, who had been informed of these things by Saturninus, the husband of Fulvia, who inquired about it, ordered all the Jews to be banished out of Rome. <laughs> so it was such a public scandal what these men had done that they banished the Jews from Rome. These Jews know exactly what Paul is talking about. You who say you detest idols, do you handle them? Do you break Moses' law? Do you do these kinds of things, or do, are you in affirmation of the people who do these things? So he says, you who boast and trust in the law, do you dishonor God by routinely breaking it? Paul says this hypocritical, moralistic religion, while corporately and privately breaking the law of Moses, has scandalized Judaism. And what he's trying to say, his conclusion to his countrymen is just this. Listen, this righteousness according to the law hasn't worked out for us. We, we haven't done it. We have not lived up to it. Have we ever? What he's driving at here is that if, listen, the most vocal, ardent teacher of the moral law of God and Moses' law, if you will just turn the spotlights in on your own life, if you will turn that rule that you have for others, if you will just turn it in and you will really be circumspect and you will really be Look at your own life. You will see that in many and varied ways, you break the law of God on multiple levels all the time. And the truth is no one can live up to this. Who can do it? Jesus. Number two, the badge of covenant membership is receiving the spirit, not physical circumcision. You see that? The badge of covenant membership with God is receiving the Holy Spirit, not the physical sign of circumcision. Are you, are you shocked by that? Are you blown away by that? Of course you aren't. You're a Gentile. You don't care about circumcision. But for Paul to say this to a bunch of Jews in the first century, I can see Jews in the synagogue falling out of their chairs. What do you mean? Read Moses. Circumcision is everything. It's our covenant sign. It's the sign that we are God's chosen people. We've been set apart, and God gave us this sign in the flesh. What does he say here in verses 25 through 28? The most shocking, jarring thing he could tell a Jew. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. Well, if you obey it the way Moses commanded you to obey every single one of them at the heart level and externally, then circumcision is beneficial. But if you're a lawbreaker, as, as you are, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. It's worthless. 
So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law requirements, will not his circumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically circumcised but who keeps the law will judge you, the lawbreaker, in spite of having the letter, the Torah, the Old Testament, and then the sign of circumcision, the law of circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something that's visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Holy Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. Now, this is a tough passage. It's tough for them to hear, but you need to see it. The covenant sign of circumcision was always and only ever supposed to lead to a consecration of the heart. And that's what circumcision is. It's just this physical symbol that says you're set apart. You're consecrated to God, right? That's all it ever was. Now, no sooner does Moses give it to them in Deuteronomy chapter 10, and he says what you really need is you really need to be devoted, consecrated, set apart in the heart. You need circumcision of the heart. And then jarringly, he says in Deuteronomy 30, what he's going to do is promise and prophesy to them, you're going to disobey all these laws. You're going to receive in yourself all the curses that I just laid out for you for disobeying the law. And when you do, you're going off into exile in a foreign land, and there you'll be in a state of judgment. And this is God's heart for you. This is your God's heart for you. He says, instead, this is the covenant, or he goes on to say, he says, uh, the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. How will you live? How will you have life? How will you have the life of God? You will have it when God sets you apart on the inside, when he does a work in your heart at the heart level that all the law-keeping in the world cannot do externally. It's going to be a matter of the heart. And Jeremiah goes on to say this. In chapter 31, he, God tells us he's giving them a new covenant. God says he will make a new covenant with Israel and, and that it would not be like the old one. He says, instead, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. There it is. It's a matter of the heart, not external. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord. That's what the priests were charged to do. The the priests were the ones who were charged to tell people to know the Lord. He said, no, it's going to be a nation of priests. It's going to be a whole bunch of priests, everyone, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. This is the Lord's declaration. And then he says this, this is the key. I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. There is no passage associated with the sacrificial cult of Judaism, the tabernacle or the temple, where God promises that any of those sacrifices are going to be a permanent, permanent forgiveness of their sins. How can this be? Right there. Because the Lamb of God hung on that cross and finally purchased for us the forgiveness of our sins once and for all. This is what God says, I'm going to do for you. This covenant is defined by a genuine internal change where God's word is written on the heart, not just on stone tablets. And he finishes the section by giving him a a stark contrast of the unbelieving Jew who has physical circumcision 
and the believing Gentile with circumcision of the heart. I want to put it up for you. I want to show you this. Verse 25. The unbelieving Jew who only has physical circumcision breaks the law without the power of the Spirit to keep it. So he breaks it on multiple levels in ways that he doesn't even know how sometimes. But the believing Gentile with the Holy Spirit, with circumcision of the heart, keeps the law because they have the power of the Holy Spirit. Verses 25 and 27 and 28, the unbelieving Jew has, outward, has been outwardly circumcised as a sign of covenant membership in the old covenant. But the believing Gentile inwardly is circumcised as the sign of the new covenant membership. Verses 26 and 29. The unbelieving Jew seeks to obey the letter in his own strength, under his own steam, in his own power. He can't do it. But look at the believing Gentile. He's able to obey the law through the spirit empowerment, the enabling presence of God in his life. The unbelieving Jew with physical circumcision only will will be judged by those who've been consecrated, verse 27, and, and the believing Gentile will judge those who only have physical circumcision. And the unbelieving Jew has failed to live up to his title. Remember what the word Jew means, those who bring Yahweh praise. And now the believing Gentile with circumcision of the heart by the Spirit receives a new title, those who are praised by God. Why? Because they receive God's righteousness that is not according to the law, that is not according to law-keeping, that is according to faith in Christ who kept the law. And so what's the final outcome? National Israel who only possesses the letter but not the spirit, the physical symbol, but not heart transformation, will not be justified on the day of judgment. It will not be enough to make them immune to God's condemnation for sin. And the final outcome for the Gentile who believes and has the spirit, Gentiles who become obedient to God's truth, revealed in in the Jewish Messiah, receive the promised Holy Spirit. They live in a new covenant, a new reality in Christ's blood, and they can expect to be justified by faith on the day of judgment. Do you see the contrast here? So he contrasts the person who only has the physical, the external, the rules on the tablets, and the person who's been fundamentally changed, consecrated, and set apart by the Holy Spirit, which he calls inner circumcision. So what's our application today? There are some takeaways I think we need to take away from it. No redundancy intended. (laughs) Application number one. Folks, don't miss this. Sit up. Write it down. We are challenged today to let go of our trust in religious affiliation and the external works prescribed by it. Okay? If it was true of them, it's definitely true of us. Nothing we possess in of ourselves. Nothing external. No religious titles. No denominational associations, no church memberships, no affiliations, no no amount of doctrinal instruction is going to make us immune or exempt on the day of when God judges every human being, according to Paul's gospel. So we must let go of every external thing that we would trust in other than Jesus, everything. All right, let me ask you the question today. Are you trusting in something to get you by, to get you over, other than Jesus and his righteousness today. Number two, we must be careful not to become blinded by our own self-righteousness. Remember John 9. This is the key. 
Jesus says, since you say you can see, your blindness remains. And this is the problem in our culture. This is the problem in our Christian lives. When people justify their sin and they say they can see and they're unwilling to yield to the Spirit's conviction to confess their sins, they can't experience cleansing from sin. And anyone who says, my sin is justified, my sin is right, my sin is sacred, I won't be asking for forgiveness, I won't be confessing it to God. God cannot forgive that sin. He can't, he won't. So understand that we have to be careful because unrighteousness blinds us to our own self-righteousness. Number three, we must avoid anti-Semitism and Christian Zionism. We must avoid, like the plague, anti-Semitism. I am actually shocked by how much anti-Jewish sentiment is in our culture today. Have you been shocked by that? I mean, Jewish people who go to synagogue are getting shot up like churches are. Jewish people are, are experiencing all kinds of persecution within the cultures. We must avoid, like the plague, anti-Semitism. It's inappropriate for the people of God who name Christ as Lord. But also, the other extreme is Christian Zionism, what I call a kind of theological Zionism. And so on the one hand, sadly, the church has succumbed to this for 2,000 years. Anti-Semitism. In 135 AD, the Jews revolted against Rome one last time. It's called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. You write that down, look it up later. I'm sure that will entertain you for hours today later. <laughs> and the Bar Kokhba Revolt was the last Jewish revolt against Rome. And it was such a stigma on the Jewish people at the time that the Christian church decided in 135 AD, we're going to permanently separate from the Jews. Christianity is a Gentile deal. We're not even going to associate with them. And then over 2,000 years, they persecuted people who called themselves Christians, persecuted Jews over certain periods for 2,000 years. And so that's entirely inappropriate. Paul is going to anticipate now a kind of anti-Semitic sentiment based on his critique of his own people. In chapter 3, verse 1, just turn over there really quickly. He says this, so what advantages does the Jew have? What advantage is there in even being a Jew? Well, what is the benefit of circumcision? He says considerable in every way. So he wants to remind us that there are certain advantages that the Jew has over us because they have the scripture. They've been educated in it. Their gospel is in the scripture. In Romans 11, he's going to ask the question, so has God rejected his people? By his people, he means ethnic Jews, right? Because that's the contrast there, Gentiles and Jews. Has God rejected them? Absolutely not. God has not put them aside. They have rejected their God, but God has not rejected them. He says it three times that God has, has not rejected ethnic Jews. So don't even imagine that God has cast ethnic Israel aside and replaced them with you. The Bible does not teach replacement theology, that the Gentile church replaces Israel. It teaches inclusion theology, that Jew and Gentile alike are both included in the one family of God, the one olive tree, the natural branch, and the grafted branch. That's what Paul has to say. 
The only replacement theology that the New Testament teaches is that Jesus is the new Jew. And everyone who is in Jesus are the people of God by faith. So don't even think that God has cast his people aside. But on the other hand, on the opposite score, we have to be careful of an undue emphasis on national ethnic Israel that has led some churches into a false gospel. What am I talking about? This nonsense that I'm hearing today about people saying that because ethnic Jews are Jews, because they're in Abraham, because they have the Old Testament, they're automatically saved. No, they ain't. Paul's entire case in Romans chapter 11 is for a remnant among the Jews and among the Gentiles. The elect of God from among that group. That's his entire case. That's what he's saying. God has a remnant. In fact, we know he's saying that because the very example that he uses is Elijah. Elijah, back in that story, God told Elijah, I have 7,000 people left. Like the rest of the nation is apostate. They've all chased Ahab and Jezebel and the idols, but I've got 7,000 people left. So it's an elect group from within the larger group. Understand that they still need to be saved. They still need Jesus as their Savior. They need to name him as their Lord. That's Paul's entire point right here, is that being a good Jew, having the Torah, going to synagogue, having this religious external affiliation, it's not going to cut it. It's not going to give you immunity on the day of judgment. So we must avoid ethnic replacement theology that is patently unbiblical, and we must avoid unwarranted or excessive emphasis on national Israel, which can lead us to denying the gospel. They need the gospel. Listen, I'm super happy that national ethnic Israel is a Western-style democratic state in a very hostile territory. I'm glad they're an ally. But every secular, every Orthodox, and every rabbinic Jew who lives there who does not name Jesus as Lord needs to get saved, or they're going to stand before the bar of God's judgment, and they're going to be declared unjustified. They need Jesus. So preaching Moses' law provides no immunity. It provides no uh, exemption whatsoever from God's final judgment. And the badge of covenant membership is no longer physical circumcision. It's not circumcision of the flesh. It's circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit who brings you into the family of God by faith. Will you pray with me? And invite the worship team to come back up. Bow your heart in humility before the Lord before God. We are challenged today, Lord God of heaven, to let go of any trust that we would have in a religious structure, an affiliation, a title, a denomination, membership, profuse and abundant doctrinal instruction. None of that is going to justify us before you on that day. And so Lord, Today, we embrace Jesus, the Messiah on the cross, who is our justification, who is our righteousness before God. And today, God, as a people, we, we are careful not to be blind gods, guides who claim to lead others into truth and walk around totally blind to the fact that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior And God, would you open our eyes to the truth 
Open our eyes to the truth of your word, but also, Lord, would you open our eyes to the truth about ourselves? Would you help us to turn the spotlight inward so that we may confess our sins and come to you with clean and holy hands and lift them in worship? And God, we want to commit ourselves, Lord, to being good neighbors. Good neighbors of those who are your original people. We love our Jewish friends and we pray for them all. We pray for everyone in Israel right now. We thank you for the revival, the Christian revival that is going on there now. We, we thank you for the influx of believers who are going into that state and witnessing for the truth. And Lord, we pray in these last days that you would raise up more and more Jewish people who believe in their Messiah, who believe in Christ, who will be the witness that the Jewish Messiah has already come. And Lord, we pray for them today. And we ask that you would just continue to do that miracle in these last days. And Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have poured out on us so abundantly. We're so blessed to have the Spirit so abundantly poured out. Lord, would you pour it out, out on us and our nation once again, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.